Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jones. Bowden. He's got it. England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Stokes flashes it away through the covers for four. And England have won the match. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. This is episode 416 of our podcast. And there's a number for you, Simon. 416, the sort of score that England were knocking off for fun in one day cricket, but they can't even get halfway in test cricket. And that may be one of the reasons why Chris Silverwood has lost his job as England coach. I suppose it was inevitable. But anyway, we'll discuss that. And also uh, Ashley Giles being sacked as the director of cricket as well. Uh, in this show, we're going to look at the England under-19s who have got to the final of the under-19 World Cup on Saturday. Uh, we're going to hear from one of their coaches. And also, we've got Roland Butcher on as well. A lot of going on in the, the Caribbean at the moment. And Roland Butcher was England's first ever black player. He's uh, starting out on a diversity and inclusivity mission this summer. Uh, so I thought we'd uh, talk to him about that and his life as well. So he's coming up a little bit later in the programme. But obviously, the breaking news, Simon, is Chris Silverwood. Falling on his sword, I suppose you'd say, or being asked to fall on his sword. And I felt I feel sorry for him, really, because in a way he had an impossible job. Well, that's one way of looking at it, I suppose. You, you could argue that he didn't do a difficult job well enough. I think that's probably how I would look at it. Yeah, you're right. An, an inevitability about the, the, his departure as England coach. I mean, people were saying he's going during the Ashes series. After they lost the Ashes series, they said, you know, that's it. Um, Chris Silverwood expected to leave his job at the end of the Ashes tour. It's taken a, a couple of weeks for, for that to happen. It's been rather drip fed, hasn't it, the news? I mean, you've got to be a bit nervous if you're in the England hierarchy around about seven o'clock in the evening because one, one <laughs> night it was Ashley Giles and everyone saying, well, what's happened to Chris Silverwood? Next night is Chris Silverwood. There might be a few people a bit nervous about seven o'clock this evening about an, an ECB uh, press release uh, coming out. So first Giles, then uh, Chris Silverwood. 
We've got Andrew Strauss in as the interim uh, director of cricket. Interesting word that, you know, interim. Does, I mean, does that suggest that he is not going to do it full time? He's not going to be persuaded to do it full time? I mean, he has been in the England. It's a softly, softly sort of approach, uh, yeah. isn't it? Isn't Could, it? Sort yeah. of, can, you, can you do it for a bit, please? We desperately need you to help out. And actually, I think the problem for him is that he's got other businesses now. I mean, that's yeah. what happens when you you know move out of one job and then you sort of evolve. And obviously, in his case, there was the tragedy of his wife dying, which had to cause him to reassess his life. And he's built a couple of other businesses on the back of uh, the the sort of tragedy, really, mm. including, including, of course, the Ruth Strauss Foundation. So, you know, it's going to be not easy for him to commit a, to a, to another full-time job, as this would be. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that's a very good point, isn't it? I mean, how, how much do you really want to take it all on again, uh, having done the job already, and probably possibly or, or also knowing some of the problems that are, are in the English game as well? So, anyway, see what happens for now. It's been muted that... Alex Stewart might take over on an interim basis as coach as well. And that's an interesting one because I remember the time that Chris Silver was appointed. I mean, Alec was in the frame. But one thing Alex said at the time was, I don't just want to be the head coach. I also want to be the person that picks the side because if my head's on the chopping block, I want, you know, I want the players that I want so I can be judged properly. I don't want, if you like, other people's players. I want to have that judgment. And of course, in a way... That's something that's done for Chris Silverwood because he was given the responsibility to to pick the the squad and the side as well. So they are his players that, if you like, have failed. But Alec wanted that to be the structure as well, and and I think it's sort of one of the reasons why he sort of faded from the scene when Chris Silverwood got the job. So you know that's an that's an interesting situation to watch whether that will continue because there's been a lot of talk about. You know, the, the, the fact that Chris Silverwood, a lot was sort of lumped on his plate, if you like, that, you know, he was white ball coach, red ball coach, and he was picking the, the teams as well. You know, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility in a different way from an England football manager. They only have, what, I don't know, 10 games a year or something like that, whereas cricket is so much more intense. It's all year round. And so, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a much harder job. So, yeah. yeah, it is a much harder job. And, and also, I, I think I think Alec is... He's making himself a hostage to fortune there if he wants that because, or if any coach wants it, because there's no other line of uh, uh, responsibility then, is there? The, the buck stops with you. If you're, the, but he wanted the, that. I think. I think that's the I point. Know, he but wanted. I'm saying it. that makes you so vulnerable. Mm. You know, whereas at least if you have someone else, you know, as chief selector or something, mm. then there is another line of responsibility and the thing is coaches the head coach he gets the team and the captain they basically get the team they want they're in on selection they talk about it to the chief selector and if there's a massive disagreement the coach and the captain will get the player that they want 99 times out of 100 so I don't really think that's a a, a, a logical worry for the coach so why is so much being have... made of it then why 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 is so much being made of it if that's the if that's the case yeah, good question. I don't know. It seems, and it, and I just think it's as I said at the start. I think it's an impossible job. You can't possibly keep abreast of all the players in contention for both white ball and red ball and coach both teams as well. I just don't see. It's, I just don't see how it's physically possible. The schedule is ridiculous already, and if you've got responsibility for selection mm. as well, that means you know keeping abreast of county cricket and all the kind of. Contenders, I just think it's an it's it's an impossibility. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm talking to Michael Vaughan about this. You know, he he 
would say, you know, when he was England captain, he pretty much got the team that he wanted as, as captain. So isn't it? it's not just about the coach, isn't it? It's, it's, it's also about the, the captain as well. Anyway, that, that's something that Alec wanted. He wanted, he didn't want to be, if you like, picking other people's players. He wanted absolutely the players that he wanted. And, and that's what, <laughs> that's what Chris Silver yeah. got. And it so so who's it going to be? I mean, you know, there's obviously lots of names being uh, touted around. I mean, for me, I think uh, an overseas coach is good just because it gives them a bit more worldly perception. And I think it's important. It's all, all very well to promote uh, an English coach, a county coach, like an Andy McGrath, somebody like that, to the top job. And obviously, you know, in a way, it's nice for the top coach, the top county coach to have that opportunity to coach for England. I think maybe that the route should be that you, you promote a top English county coach to the role of head one-day coach, perhaps, and that is the stepping stone to being test coach. I think just the test coach is so sophisticated. You're shaking your head. I just think, I just think being a test coach is so, it's such a, mm. a sophisticated form of the game. And, you know, there, there, there's a lot riding on it as well. I mean, and and you know, when you go and play abroad especially, it's just so different. And if you haven't had that worldly experience, which someone like Paul Farbrace, you know, conceded on our virtual cricket club a few weeks ago that he had because he coached Sri Lanka for quite some time, it just gives you that wider perception and understanding of uh, other countries' cultures, playing cultures and styles and pitches and approaches. And I think that really helps. Yeah. And that was Silverwood's problem, I think, was just that he hadn't had enough real experience around the world to understand how to approach playing the action. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that point in, in terms of you need that, you know, that vast experience, I think, and, and the test job is a sophisticated one. What I think, where I would disagree with you is I don't think now in white ball cricket, it's just, it should be just seen as a stepping stone. White ball cricket is so important of its own right that actually, and in, it, there's enough money. And I've been making this point before. and I, I, I remember making it to Ashley Giles, actually, in, in the interview I did with him in, in Sydney that actually sort of got quite a lot play and you know people have pointed to that as being one of the sort of uh, one of the moments where he you know he seemed really defensive and you know he sort of not, not quite unraveled for him it was almost like the the, the, the final straw if you like uh, uh, the point being there is enough money in the English game to be successful in test and one day cricket so you actually you could act, you can actually go out and just get the best coach for whatever role uh, in theory anyway I know there's a lot of competition from the IPL and you know it's probably easier to be uh, you know a white ball coach for two months in the IPL than it is to do the England job which is sort of like an all year round thing uh, so there's a I, I, what I wouldn't see it as a stepping stone I would see you know go, go and get the best white ball coach you possibly can go and get the best test match coach you possibly can and I, I, I it seems as if that they are going to have a split in the role now. There is it, that seems most likely, doesn't it? And and actually, you can probably get better coaches if you like by doing that because people don't have to commit all year round. You know, it's not all consuming. If you if you've got that one job, okay, it's pretty well paid. I mean, that's the other thing; it's very well paid. But it's a lot of focus, a lot of stress, a lot of time. If you're England's red and white ball coach, and you know, it's it's, it's a tough gig. Um, so. Perhaps they will split it. I mean, it's amazing how these things go in trends, isn't it? I mean, there was a time you say, "Oh yeah, they've got to have two coaches," and then they abandon that, and then they're probably going to go back to it again. One thing we haven't talked about, yours, is the captain. It, mm. it seems as if, I mean, the word seems to be that Joe Root is going to continue as England Test captain. 
I suppose you could say the thing about coaches is there you you, you, know, you can choose from all around the world. There, there's a lot of options, whereas with the England Test captain, <laughs> there aren't that many options. You can only obviously you can only pick uh, from with mainly within the English game. So and they don't look to be that many candidates. Whereas with with coaching, uh, clearly there are many more candidates. I just feel I suppose if they've now done a bit of a clear out, they need some stability and some consistency, and so. I would probably keep Joe Root as captain. I mean, he wasn't that good, to be honest, in the Ashes. I think he made some sort of small but elementary errors which compounded themselves together and sort of didn't really help England's cause. Look, fine man, fantastic batsman. I love Joe Root to bits. Uh, He's not the best Mm. captain, but maybe the stability of keeping him in the job at the moment is important. Otherwise... You know, getting a new captain as well as a new coach and a new director of cricket, it's sort of, it's almost, you know, throwing out the baby and the bathwater, isn't it? So I, I think that's probably sensible to keep one of the three jobs the same just to, to keep that, that stability going forward. I mean, the other options would have been Ben Stokes or Stuart Broad, I suppose. Um, Stuart Broad mm. would be a very temporary appointment and it would mean he'd have to play every game pretty much. I think Ben Stokes would be an excellent captain, actually. And he's now obviously committed himself more to to England, having withdrawn from the IPL. Uh, So, you know, his commitments to England will be less interrupted, if you like. So maybe he's the long-term option. Yeah, uh, it, it's possible. Um, one thing you could say is it's sort of pushing it down the road a bit, isn't it? Because I mean, you, this is going to come up again. Uh, I mean, especially if England are unsuccessful. I mean, if, you know, what happens if England have a really poor year again? West Indies, uh, New Zealand, South Africa. What happens if they do badly? And you know, they'll have to make a decision uh, sooner rather than later. But they'll, you know, they're going to have to find a new captain uh, sometime or other because it's impossible to keep going doing the job year after year after year. It just w- does weigh you down uh, eventually. And he has done it for, for quite a long time. Well, he's done it for more t- more times than anyone else, which you know, which shows you there's an enormous longevity there. On the uh, on the coaching front. Um... There is an interesting character uh, involved in the England under 19s, and they brought uh, uh, a a good story to to our ravaged game this week by getting through their nervy semi final in the under 19 World Cup to beat Afghanistan and get into the final, which is against India on Saturday in the Caribbean. It was a very uh, tense semi final, which had a sort of slightly bizarre. Uh, fourth from last over, Afghanistan requiring 43 to win from four overs with six wickets down, I think, five or six wickets down. And uh, the, the bowler, I won't name him to, 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 to uh, save his blushes, he he bowled uh, with 43 from four overs required. He bowled a no-ball first ball, uh, which actually took a wicket, but obviously that didn't count. Uh, then he, it was a free hit. He then bowled, the next ball was a beamer, luckily quite a wide beamer, which went for four buys. So there was still a free hit in the offing. Uh, because it was a wide beamer, he wasn't taken off. He could have been taken off because he'd bowled another beamer earlier in the in the uh, match. But he wasn't taken off because this wasn't posing any threat to the batsman. But it went for four buys. So it was ten conceded off the first two balls, neither of which were legitimate. Uh, and eventually the over went for 20. So suddenly Afghanistan required 23 from three overs, which was eminently gettable. 
And then England brilliantly brought on the leg spinner Armid for the penultimate over, who took three wickets. And England actually, in the end, won by 15 runs. So it was an extraordinary turnaround, watched very nervously in the dressing room by the under-19 England batting coach, Toby Radford, who actually is a former colleague of mine at Middlesex. And talking of coaches who've done the rounds and, and been you know, very worldly in their kind of coaching experience, he's coached both the West Indies as batting coach and also he's now involved with Bangladesh. So he's definitely got the worldliness uh, sort of tag, if you like, and now working with uh, the England under-19s in the, the under-19 World Cup in, in the Caribbean, and he just recounted the, the nervousness of those last few overs of that semi-final. I mean, you sort of swayed back and forth. You thought we had it, then we didn't have it, then we got back in it. I mean, it was just a crazy game and, you know, one of those emotional roller coasters, to be honest. I think everyone was, was just exhausted, but glad we came out on the... Uh, glad we came out on the right end of it, you know, in terms of so the with, the with with four overs to go, you were definitely favourites. And then there was that sort of nightmare over of, of a yeah. no-ball wicket and then a, a, a beamer... And then there was a chance yeah. he might not bowl again. And then he'd had to bowl again. And, the, you know, 20 off the over. So suddenly the Afghanistan were back in it. And then the brave decision to bowl a leg spinner in the penultimate over. What about that? Well, I think good, good from the captain that he backed him. I mean, Rayhan, um, up until now, has been a major part of our team. You know, he's a, he's a very good leg spinner. Got great googly on him that people don't always pick. Um, and he's a dangerous bowler. And I, and I think Tom... You know, back to him. He knows the quality of the bowler, and and Rayhan's a confident lad. He's a very confident lad. You know, and the fact that he didn't bowl well earlier in the evening, um, he still wanted to get up there to take the ball and, and go and deliver, and and delivery did. So um, great from Tom, I think, as captain, and 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 brilliant. Rayhan wanted to do it and came up trumps. So it was fantastic end to the match. Wasn't it? From a batting coach's perspective, are these guys largely white ball specialists, or do you think they have a future? in Red Bull Test Cricket, and do they want to have? Within this team, um, you know, this batting lineup, I think there's real quality, um, and I think can play any format, white or Red Bull. I mean, Jacob Bethel has the ability, um, you know, which, which he showed in the game against South Africa, um, some, some wonderful shots, you know, cuts, drives, pulls, uh, but he also very tight technically against a Red Bull. James Rue from Somerset is a very solid player. Um, and a player who hasn't really fired yet on this um, on on the, in this tournament, but did incredibly well against um, Sri Lanka over in Colombo. Uh, Will Luxton from Yorkshire, who is um, I think a real outstanding prospect as well. So I think there's high quality players here. They've got good technique, um, but they have the ability to go up through the gears to play the white ball, which is what we're what we're seeing at the moment. You know, coaches have, have had a bit of a bad rap recently, perhaps unfairly. You're a traditionalist. You you know you liked the longer form when you played, and you were playing play yeah. fairly orthodox way. Are you compromised sometimes by you know the the criticism of England's Ashes Test match team, and yet you're trying to bring on a, a white ball team? No, not at all. I mean, I, I I very much believe in the fundamentals of the game. 
uh, and in batting and that, you know, if you have good balance and you align in the right way and you can move forward and back quickly uh, and you can access the ball well, um, that, that you can play red ball and white ball. So I always believe in the good fundamentals and I still believe that the best players in the world can play all formats, you know, whether that's Virat Kohli or Kane Williamson, the best players are the best players. So I always look for good basic fundamentals first. And then on top of that, what you then add in is it, you can put the alloys, you can put the flashy alloys on, on, on the good car once you've got the, the chassis built. So I build the chassis first and then look for the other stuff. And I, I, that, that is the way I like to coach and work with all players. I think the other point when you're coaching, of course, no two players really play the same. So you, you build a good relationship with the player. And once you've got that trust and a good working relationship, you get to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, they understand their strengths and their weaknesses and you work together um, and little things creep in, the little technical things creep in and you hopefully see them and you you use video and you get them to buy into it by showing the video to support whatever you see um, and you carry on working together in a journey. Um, you know, and, and there'll be certain things that work for player A that won't work for player B. And I hope that over years of experience of coaching, um, you, you know, you, you have lots of different drills you can pull on. So if a certain drill doesn't work with the, with one player, you pull off, you know, you pull it off a hanger and you and you, and you go with the other drill that you, which then hopefully does work. And um, like I say, just coming back to the Tom Press thing, we have a drill now that works for him. And every morning before every net and before every game, now he does his little ten minutes of uh, of basic drills so that they get ready to, to to play um and that's something hopefully he can take with him now when he goes back to Hampshire and as he goes on and pushes on further with his career you know so it's England against India in the final and Five Live Sports Extra is going to bring you commentary on that match uh, tomorrow I'll be involved in the commentary team uh, the name you couldn't mention Yoz James Sales he bowled that over that, that went for for 20 son of David of course he used to play at Northamptonshire and James Sales is at Northamptonshire as well he's played a bit of championship cricket and Royal London uh, one day cup cricket uh, last summer and if he is selected for the final chance to uh, redeem himself we've all had bad overs haven't we T towards the end well you have towards the end of uh, significant <laughs> Actually, matches he did take, in fact I have to say he did take a brilliant catch in the penultimate over, right on the boundary edge, which could easily have gone for six. So he did have a, in a way, he would have felt a little bit better at the end of the match because he took a crucial catch there. Indeed. Uh, what about under-19 cricket then? I mean, wh why didn't you play for England under-19s? That, that was a question I was thinking about as we came to re record this podcast. I mean, you got quite close to being selected for the, for the England full, full side mm. uh, during your career. Why, why didn't you play in England under-19 cricket in, you know, in 30 seconds? We didn't really have an England under-19 side, actually, at that time. I played the nearest equivalent, which was a match between the MCC schools and HMRC schools or something. Actually, HMRC is the, the tax inspectors, isn't it? So it definitely wasn't that. A headmaster's conference <laughs> uh, 11 against MCC schools yeah. 11, which was basically the, yeah. the best 22 players in the country under 19. Uh, we played a match at Lords, and I actually took five for 20 in that game and then got promoted to what would have been the England under 19 side to play the combined services in a one-day match. That was the only... Thing that was there and actually I took I think I took five wickets in that game as well also at Lords so I got as close as you could get at that in that era uh, right. and, and it's great that they have that, that that stepping stone now because as Toby Radford said you know they go through the, the the opposition in great detail they analyze their own game you know they have all the kind of support staff or some of the support staff that you would get at test level so it's very much 
uh, you know, leading players forward towards the sort of sophistication and support that you would get at, at the top level. Okay, two points about that. This this is the first one. Interesting to hear what Toby was saying there about batting techniques. He feels the techniques are, are solid. And yeah, it's, it's worth, because there's been a lot of focus on that, hasn't there, about techniques of young players after what happened in the Ashes, you know, getting those basics right and something Paul Firebrace has been talking about. Is it right that a coach at that level says, no, you just you mustn't play, you can't play like that? But you, but your your point is that if you're too sort of didactic, then you just lose you lose the attention of the players, and you sort of you you, be, you get yeah. you get seen as someone who you know is always was always at you the the whole time, and that's not what young players want. I think that's right, and and this is what's happened with someone like Justin Langer. You know, it's amazing to think that Justin Langer's job is in jeopardy given he's won the World T20 and the Ashes so emphatically. But his style, which I think has mellowed probably over the last year, is quite a, a, a sort of confrontational one. He's quite an intense sort of character. And the modern player doesn't like, well, let's call it, a, you know, someone who's perhaps a bully is a little bit too strong a word, but someone who is, is a little too headstrong perhaps in their view or a bit too blunt in some of the things they say. I'm just thinking back to some of the coaches that, that we had in the 80s. And in fact, Roland Butcher in the second half of this programme, we'll, we'll talk about one of them, Don Bennett, who was the coach at, at Middlesex and for, for many years was also actually a very good footballer. And, you know, and if you did anything wrong, we had naughty boy nets. You had, if, if, if there was someone sort of a bit late, he had to do fielding practice and he whacked the ball as hard as he could at them, sort of virtually break his fingers. You know, there were people like Doug Paget at Yorkshire who was a slightly terrifying figure. So, you know, the coaches of that era were, were pretty, they were bullies at times. Uh, it doesn't work in the modern game. You have to have a, a more softly, softly sort of approach. But, but is there room for a coach to say, no, you can't, this, well, I think you there should do be. this. Are you all I that, think there at, should at that be, age? yes. I think there should be. But the trouble is, player power is so immense now that word gets round that this bloke's you know a bit of a sort of you know word and yeah. you know then players don't want to work with them yeah okay my other point was about the sort of relevance of under 19 cricket you in terms of developing players it is only a snapshot in time isn't it because you think of the england test side that was in australia you've got players playing you know who are about 23 24 to Jimmy Anderson at 39. So you've got a spread of 16 years. What you're talking about with under-19 cricket, you're talking about two years, basically, aren't you? 17 to 19. I had a look back at the England side that beat, at the one in South Africa in 1998 when they beat New Zealand in the final. And the team was, these are sort of names from the past, really. Some some of them will be familiar uh, to our listeners. Some probably might not be familiar to any of them. But um, Peters, uh, Stephen Peters of Essex, uh, Rob Key, uh, Paul Franks, O.A. Shah, someone called Graham Swan, uh, Chris Schofield, Giles Hayward. Now, he played at Sussex, didn't make it really at, at, at county level. Uh, Graham Napier, who played at Essex. Jonathan Powell, he played at Essex as well, didn't really make it. Nicholas uh, Wilton uh, played for Sussex a bit, he, 17 he actually, first class the, matches. He's ahead of um, Gray Nichols' bats, actually. Now. Right, right. So he well, sort of 17... made it in the game in a different way. Yeah, 17 first class matches, 19 list A. And Richard Logan. Who played at, at not so of those only Graham Swan had a really successful Test match career. Uh, Rob Key played a bit of Test cricket. Owen Shah played a bit of Test cricket. Chris Schofield uh, played a bit of Test cricket, and you know a few of them like the likes of Peters and, and, and Napier had 
you know, decent and Franks had a decent yeah. county careers. And Paul yeah. Franks played a little bit of one day international career. I think one day international cricket. I think he played uh, one match. So it's, it's like a sort of snapshot in time. And, and in a way, if you only produce sort of well, there they produced one top test cricket, didn't they, from that winning team in 1998, and that was Graham Swan. I had a look back at the Indians as well. Of course, Kohli was captain in 2008 when they won the Under-19 World Cup. Uh, but when they won it in 2012, the only player that I could see that came through, that uh, has come through for India, and even then he hasn't really had a great career, is, is Hanuman Vihari. He played, he's played 13 test matches, and that from their... T- team that won in 2012 actually Travis Head was playing for Australia in that match because he's just been named you know player of the series in the ashes so it's it's funny uh Kohli and Jadeja in, in 2018 uh 2008 I should say 2018 Shaw and Gill and Mavi for for India some of the names that have come through so it's no guarantee that if you do well at under nineteen level, you can you can fall by the wayside. It's funny how you know, players fluctuate. You know, you can be a really good seventeen, eighteen year old, and it doesn't quite work out for you. Can you know you can have you can sort of tail off, and other players just really overtake you and really come through, who are not sort of they don't feature that much at seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. It, it always happens in every era. Players mm. developing at different stages or not kicking on when you expect. You know, actually that. Uh, the Indians winning that 2008 Under-19 World Cup. Um, Virat Kohli, as you say, captain. Mm. Well, he hadn't been heard of much at the time. I mean, that was his only notorious achievement. And he got picked up by Royal Challengers Bangalore in the second auction for the first IPL for $50,000. <laughs> that was the price he, he went for because no one had ever heard of him, really. And... Mm. Everyone's <laughs> so, got to yeah. start somewhere. So, what a bargain! And he's still with the RCB now, twelve years on, thirteen years on, and this mega auction. I mean, we'll do a, a, a podcast about it next week. Actually, um, the mega auction coming up for the IPL with twelve hundred players in it from around the world, and these under nineteen cricketers. There's a there's a window of opportunity there for them. I mean, it may not be this IPL, but uh, they'll be thinking probably, you know, sort of laterally. Uh, there's, a, there's an opportunity to make a huge amount of money if you if you star in a tournament like that. Yeah, well, from the the team that played in 2000, uh, the Indian team that played in 2000 and, and lost to Bangladesh in the final in South Africa. Jaiswal played in that team. Uh, Bishnoi, uh, Garg, uh, Tayagi. So that they've all gone and played. You know, gone. Oh, on you have done your homework, haven't you? Yeah, me. I have. So <laughs> yeah, you've eaten the stats book this week, haven't you? <laughs> well. Well, I just do a bit of research, yours every now, every now and again. Uh, someone's got to. Uh, yeah, Ravi Bishnoi, who you know, really caught the eye for the for the Kings eleven, took a stunning catch in the last IPL. One of the great boundary catches I think I've ever seen. Yeah, so he he played in that two thousand side. Uh, yeah, I think it's just fascinating actually to see how how players' careers go up and down. How some people don't really don't make it at all. And only and only a few. You know, it's it's so competitive, isn't it? You know, you've always got to be on your games. Uh, throughout the years, you know you, that that age from eighteen, nineteen to twenty three, twenty four, which is sort of when I think probably most players who are any good start to emerge into the international side around about age twenty three, twenty four. I mean, I think sometimes the top players, the real stars, uh, you know, play at twenty one. Like you know, I think of the past: David Gower, Alistair Cook, and Ian Botham. I'm sure I think they all played at at 21. But you know, generally speaking, you're thinking 23, 24, aren't you, to emerge into the international side on a on a relatively uh, regular basis. Quick word on the England women, Yoz. Uh, England men uh, unsuccessful in the Ashes, thumped. England women more competitive. Um, 
but not quite being able to turn two very good situations into match-winning uh, positions. They're in match-winning positions potentially, but not really being able to to nail it mm. down. Yeah, shame. I, get Kate Cross up the order, I think. She played so well in that last wicket stand with Catherine Brunt. The middle order has been failing, hasn't it, recently? You know, Heather Knight, fantastic. Nat Siver, very consistent. It's just lower down. It's that sort of five, six, seven, eight, even. And Brunt's done her. Brunt's done her best. Just uh, they haven't quite nailed down, and that's a difficult area to bat, isn't it? I mean, in any format, but especially in one-day cricket, it's it's not easy to to get your options right, batting five, six, seven, England have got to do better because Australia, they've got so many bowling options. They're brilliant fielders. They've got that self-belief that they're going to turn situations around all the time, which, of course, their men have had for or had for many years, especially in that sort of ponting era in one-day cricket. They, they just knew they had a bowler who could take the key wicket or a, a fielder who could take the brilliant catch, and the Australian women are the same. England have to try and match them. Right, let's hear from Roland Butcher, Yoz, uh, shall we? Uh, he was in the Virtual Cricket Club uh, earlier this week, talking from uh, the Caribbean. There'll be a lot of focus on the Caribbean. In fact, there already has, with England uh, losing that T20 series 3-2. And, of course, we'll look ahead uh, eventually to the Test Series, which, which takes place in March. Uh, Roland, of course, played for Middlesex. He played with you at Middlesex. He's coming to England with Des Haynes. Uh, in, this summer to do an inclusivity and diversity tour, which he, he talks about uh, in his interview uh, coming up. And Roland, of course, was the, the first uh, black player to play Test cricket for England. Yeah, looking back now, obviously, I'm very, very proud of that moment um, because, you know, it certainly was a breakthrough moment, not just for me, but it was a breakthrough moment for a lot of black players in England who suddenly felt empowered that, you know, if they did well, they'd get the opportunity. Um, obviously, at the time, when I was selected and played, you know, that was the furthest thing from my mind because at that stage, you know, it was just a fulfillment of, you know, an ambition you had as a kid to play international cricket. So, you know, all you wanted to do was to play and do well. You, you didn't really understand the, the significance. But, you know, when you speak to people like Norman and Deva Malcolm and people like that who openly said that, you know, they said, well, look, Roland is no different to me. So, you know, I, I can certainly have a chance if I do well. So it certainly opened the doors for them to, to think positively about um, playing international cricket. Since then, you know, you've seen all the players that has, has followed that. I think there's some 21, 22 players, um, including females as well. So, yeah, it was a seminal moment, but something now that I look back on, with pride, but as I said at the time, you know, I just felt like another player. Why has that, you know, stream of, of black players in England dried up? What I think happened over time now, Simon, is that the, the emphasis in terms of recruitment in English cricket has changed. As you would know, because you were very much part of the Middlesex side when I was there, you, you know the job that Don Bennett did as, as coach. Um, Don Bennett was not the traditional coach that we see now, who is the head of the organization. Don Bennett really spent most of his time with the second 11 and the youth. And as you know, 
you know, he was out really scouting um, for talent. So he was able to pick up the likes of Will Slack in, you know, the backwaters of, of Buckinghamshire and Neil Williams and, and Norman and, and others for weeks, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So in them days, the coach's job was totally different to what it is now. You know that the first team was run by Bruce as captain. Um, Don Mine Bennett really, yeah. really yeah, didn't have a great deal to do with it. So the coach's job at that time was to identify talent and bring it into the youth setup, into the second 11, and eventually hand them over um, to mm. Mike Brady. I think what has happened now is that the public school system has come very much more to the fore. It was always obviously there, but it's come much more to the fore. You've got um, the public schools now have ex-county players and, and test players as their cricket coaches. So basically, you know, those players yep. are going to want to try and develop first-class players because they're not going to just want to be in the job for the sake of being in the job. You know, they want to push their school and get as many players as possible. So then you find that the, the coaches in the county setups, because some of them would have played um, with these guys, suddenly have this affiliation and they're now able to communicate much better. So if I um, am friends with the coach at Radley, um, he was an ex-player, you know, I can pick up the phone and, and Simon, um, you got any good players? Mm. And Simon was, I think so and so and so and so. You'll trust Simon's judgment because Simon was an ex-player, he knows the standard, he knows what's required. So I think that has happened over time um, amongst the public schools. I'm not mm. saying that that is a bad thing, but as it, it has made it easier uh, for the coach to recruit players. He no longer has to trudge around the backwaters try, trying to find players. And, and as I you suppose know, also they have to, you know, there's more of a kind of pathway, which is an accepted route, where what you're saying is Don Bennett almost uh, almost usurped that route and just actually went and looked around and saw talent and basically sort of pulled it in, which was which was a nice uh, nice way of doing it. So well, that's right, um, because, because yeah. I mean, what, what, what really happened then is, and still happens now is you must remember that a lot of these black kids and Asian kids were not playing in, in mainstream teams. So yeah. it, it, it was much harder to find them. You know, you, you had, so that's where you, you would find a guy playing for a team that you, like, you've never heard of. That's what happened then. Now, the situation like in the inner part of London where facilities are not great for cricket and these guys cannot get a chance to play for your team, they will never get seen um, because, you know, if coaches are going to go to clubs, they're primarily going to look at mainstream clubs, whether it's your club or Shepherd's Bush or whatever. They will look yeah. at the mainstream clubs. Mm. Um, mm. You know, they're not going to play. look at some group yeah. of guys playing at one step common mm. on a Sunday afternoon. So, you know, that's how the life has changed. Um, you know, if you, if you want to find the talent, I always maintain that. And Harry Sharp always had to say, you know, which he said to me, Roland, you know, if you want a fighter, if you want a hungry fighter, you know, you've got to look in those areas for those people. And he's telling me there's no fighter like a hungry fighter. And I still believe uh, that. And um, Harry was, as you know what Harry was like, um, mm. you know, a great man, but a very wise guy as well. Mm. He didn't say much when he had something to say. You know, <laughs> he made you laugh. Yeah, but he, but he, I remember that to this day because yeah. it's true. It's true. Yeah. It is true. 
Harry Sharp, he was a, for those who don't know, he was a, a, an arch blocker for Middlesex in the 50s. The thing I loved about him, actually, was that the fact that he was the scorer for, for our era. He, so he went off, he'd come in in the dressing room in the morning and he always lit up a cigarette just before going off to the scorer's box and smoked half of it in the dressing room, of course, in those days. And then with his fingers, he stubbed out his cigarette, <laughs> half smoked, and then kept it in his mouth for the rest of the day. Then was well, scoring all day, you know, in the old-fashioned way, come back in the dressing room at the end of the day for his whiskey and coke or whatever, and light up the remainder of the fag <laughs> and then smoke the rest of it. I mean, God knows. Right. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, that, that was an art for Harry, but um, as you know, mm. he's also a very funny man, and in his time, he was a good cricketer, obviously. Yes, he did yeah. work for Middlesex, and I, I, I would never forget a very funny story Harry told me that. He said one year he turned up there for Middlesex at Lancashire, and he pulled in, he pulled into the car park, and he's at the back of the car taking the gear out of the, the car, and a guy comes up to him. The previous year, Harry scored 100 at, at um, Old Trafford, and you know Harry was a very slow player, so it would have been a long, torturous inning. So he's taking the gear out of the, the car, and this guy comes up to him. He doesn't know who he is. He said, uh, excuse me, sir, um, can you tell me, is that guy sharp playing today? And Harry said, yeah, he is. The guy said, well, I'm battling off home because he bored me tears last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh. he did used to tell that story against himself, didn't he? He's funny. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. a funny guy, classic character. Just, just one more question for me. You are embarking on a tour this summer of the UK on a, a diversity and inclusivity mission. So, so tell us a bit about that and where you're going to go and what you're hoping to achieve and why you're doing it as well. As you know, of late, we all know what has been done and what has been said. And really, there is need for clarity and there is need for assistance. Yes, I'm undertaking this diversity and inclusivity tour of the UK during the summer um, for a few months. And really, you know, I'm aiming to, you know, give talks, schools, colleges, counties, minor counties, clubs, et cetera, et cetera, along with, you know, other appearances, you know, um, some coaching, et cetera, et cetera. So it is, it is that type of tour, but the whole idea of diversity, um, someone like myself who I believe played in an era when uh, I don't think the rest of the cricketing world in England understood what diversity was about. And we played in a team that was extremely diverse back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, there's a story there to be told. So. Um, certainly from my perspective. So that is what I'm intending to do, to really show people that diversity can be good for your organization. Because we're, you know, we're also looking to do it with companies as well, that you know, the whole concept of diversity doesn't mean that it's going to degrade your, your company or make it any weaker. In actual fact, um, done properly, it will enhance the performance of your team uh, the performances of your company, etc. So it's very much that sort of tour. I'm looking forward to it. Um, the second half of the tour, Desmond Haynes will be with me. He would have been there for the entire tour, but obviously he's now he's got a new job now as um, lead selector of the West Indies. So so he will join me the second half um, of the tour. You know, we look to to go around the country, and I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Okay, so Roland's doing this diversity and inclusivity tour during the summer. 
as he mentioned, and you can get onto the tour or, or try and get him lined up to talk to your club or your county or your, even your, your company if you want uh, by going to the email address Sean, that's S-H-A-W-N at intune.com, I-N-T-U-N-E-C-O-M dot co dot U-K. Uh, you can also tweet us as well and I can get you in touch with Roland Butcher if you're interested. It's a, it's a it's a good idea, and of course it's a very topical idea. And uh, Roland is a, is a great man. Actually, he talks really well, and of course he has this sort of rich experience of firstly coming to England when he was fourteen and being you know pretty much the only black man or, or family in the Stevenage area, and um, working his way through sports teams. And actually, was a very good footballer as well. And then uh, got signed by first Gloucestershire. Actually, had him uh, your Gloucestershire team uh, give him a, gave him a trial in the second eleven, and then Middlesex poached him. Well, actually, the MCC got him first, and then uh, Middlesex took him on in the sort of early seventies. And you know, suddenly within five years, Middlesex had four, even five black players in the side. Certainly in the eighties, when I played. And it was it was a brilliant mix of of characters, and it was just a it was, it was inspiring. And actually, one of the things I said to Roland was, you know, the way they practiced was just it made practice fun and uh, and competitive as well. And I was inspired by their approach to the game. Uh, so, uh, and, and obviously, he had an excellent career. He was the first black player to play for England, who then led to sort of another uh, a number of other black players playing for England after that. So he's had a, he had a huge influence, uh, an impact on the English game, and you know he's got lots of interesting stories to tell about how that worked. Brilliant fielder, absolutely superb fielder. He was nicknamed Bland after the great South African uh, Colin Bland. I remember watching him play in a county championship match at Bristol against uh, Mike Proctor, and I remember Proctor, who was a fan, fabulous bowler and quick as well, rushing in from the Ashley Down End. I can still see it now. It was sort of like festival week at the, in Bristol, back-to-back championship matches in those days, and, and Proctor bouncing him, and Roland Butcher hooking him onto the... The, the, the roof of the tent, uh, deep backwards square leg. I can still see the shot now. It was it was actually thrilling to watch at uh, that yeah. age. Um, he was he was a thrilling batsman yeah. to watch. Actually, uh, he was also an unbelievably irritating roommate. Uh, I shared with him quite a lot. He always went to bed early, which obviously didn't work. With no, me. exactly. And usually left. He ate in the room, so uh, I would often leave his remains of his dinner on the floor. For me to tread in when I came Quite in, right quietly too. tipping around. You know, I was tiptoeing around, trying not to wake him up, and would tread in his food, sort of left on the floor. And uh, also, you know, you had to then be very careful, um, sort of going into the bathroom to clean your teeth and stuff, and not turn on any lights. And on one occasion, I delved into my toilet bag to get my toothpaste out to clean my teeth before going to bed, and accidentally got out a tube of Ralgex and cleaned my teeth with that instead. Uh, by mistake um, so he, he was quite an annoying roommate and then he would get up at six in the morning for an early shower and clean his sinuses and make an absolute racket so he was he was the worst roommate hold, hold on he, well he might say the same with you yours actually well, he, he coming in late at night and disturbing him and, and treading in his food that he was gonna have for his breakfast um, <laughs> also as well something strikes me there hold on Roland Butcher played for England went to bed early 
Simon Hughes didn't play for England, went to bed late. I just wonder whether there's a, I don't Thanks. know, wonder whether there's a moral in the story there. I don't know. Possibly, possibly there is. I'm not sure. Anyway, are, Yoz. Are you, are, you, are you the reincarnation of my father? <laughs> anyway, Yoz, we want some questions from our listeners. We do, yes. Yeah. So, so a new idea we've got for this podcast. We've tried it a bit before, but never this way. So we will happily answer any question you have about cricket or commentary or anything to do with the game. Um, but we'd like you to send your question in as an audio file. So go to your voice recorder app on your phone or any other means of, of recording your voice and send your question in. And you can send it in to the analyst podcast at gmail.com, that email address. So that email address is theanalystpodcast at gmail.com. Record your question, send it in, and we'll play it in the podcast, or we'll play the best ones or the chosen ones in the podcast and obviously attempt to answer them as well. Good stuff. Okay, well, uh, lots to talk about this week. Uh, who knows where it, the story is going to go as far as the England uh, men's uh, test team is concerned. Good luck to uh, England and India in the Under-19 uh, World Cup final. And we'll be back speaking to you on this stream very shortly. Goodbye for now. Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.